Hello, folks. Thanks for joining. I'm here with Colin Hansen, and our subject, as you probably know, is this unbelievable book. If you know or you don't know of Tim Keller, still read the book. Colin's done just an amazing job. Uh, I have the privilege of knowing Colin, privilege of knowing Tim, consider them both friends, and uh, so this is going to be a fun few minutes together. If you don't know Colin Hansen, he's president of content, I want to get this right, and editor-in-chief for the Gospel Coalition, but he does lots of other stuff too. He has a podcast uh, called Gospel Bound. He's also uh, uh, a adjunct professor of apologetics and co-chair of the advisory board at Beeson Div Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, fresh uh, from a, uh, a trip uh, overseas uh, to the <laughs> continent of Europe and places, London, etc. Um, but I'm glad he came back. He said the reason he came back was this podcast. <laughs> I don't break uh, so, a commitment, Bob. I don't break right. a commitment. <laughs> so, Collins, I said I loved your book. I really did. Um, uh, it, 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 you, I knew Tim well, as did you. And so for me, a lot of pieces of Tim came together. Much of it I knew, but you gave it to me in more detail, and parts I didn't know, which completed the story. So I want to start with thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate that. You know, despite Tim being terminally ill, in a lot of ways, his death still seemed sudden. Yeah. Did it feel that way to you as well? Oh, it really did. I think, I think Bob, one of the reasons it felt sudden was because those of us who were communicating with Tim or with Kathy, um, it, it, it just, there were all sorts of things that we were planning, hoping, praying for all these, these books that I was talking with Tim about, about him writing and, and different hopes we had for the, for the Keller center for cultural apologetics that we were working on. And, and, um, and so that, I don't think I ever talked with Tim explicitly about this, but it seemed that, you know, some people might have an attitude when they face a terminal diagnosis like this of, you know, kind of like the bucket list of here, I'm going to do everything I possibly can, you know, cause I don't know how much time I have. Uh, Tim kind of approached it differently, which was, yeah, I'm, I'm free to do what I want now, but in some ways he just kind of kept doing the same thing <laughs> that he always did. He was, reading books and talking to people about ideas and, you know, in, in working on, working on new projects and things like that. And, and of course, part of that's because of the simple message from our savior, Jesus himself. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And we may not have a terminal diagnosis or know that we have one, but we don't know what tomorrow holds. And so some level, Tim kind of just approached it like all of us do of just kind of, you don't know what you have tomorrow. So just keep acting like you might, I mean, acting both urgently because you don't know if you'll have it, but also normally because you're trusting in the Lord's, uh, Lord's sovereign will. So Great yeah, I think that's it. why it felt, I think that's why it felt sudden to me. I don't know yeah. about you, Bob, but that's yeah, why it felt same. And I would observe Tim did do a, a great job of balancing the, I am terminally ill. This is going to end my life. Right. I don't know when. And on the other hand, I still want to minister to God's people and praise yeah. God's name. And he did that so well during his periods of wellness between um, uh, 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 chemotherapy uh, right. treatments, as, as you better, know better than me. Amazing. Why did you decide to write this book? What paths opened up for you first? Yeah. And 
the subtitle says, Timothy Keller, his spiritual and intellectual formation. This is not a biography. Uh, why did you decide to approach it all that way? You know, interestingly, Bob, over the years, I've, I've talked with a number of people, especially around New York City, and said, hey, one of you needs to write a biography of Tim Keller. <laughs> and then 2020 hit. And then the diagnosis hit shortly thereafter, after the, the COVID-19 shutdown. And I thought, wait a minute, is anybody working? Is anybody working on this? And as you know, Bob, it's not it's not normal for somebody to write a biography of somebody who's living necessarily. I mean, we do have that sometimes. It's not really common in the church, in part because you just don't know what's going to happen, what's going to change. You don't really have the perspective of time to be able to assess the full the full effect of somebody's life. So it's not a common thing to be able to do. Tim is probably also about the last person on earth who'd write an autobiography. Got that right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I'm you know I, I'm I'm a very historically minded journalist and I just kept thinking we have to know what Tim was thinking from Tim himself while we can still ask him. And one of the things that's interesting, Bob, about the approach that I took, and, and Tim and Kathy were very clear about, for the reasons I just gave, that it's not a biography because it's not writing from a critical distance. Of course, having been close with him, I'm, I can't do that. As somebody who's a, a, a longtime colleague of his to the Gospel Coalition, I couldn't really do that. So I'm not trying to write under the sort of, sort of a pretense of critical distance there, which often a biographer would have. And when we started the project, we had no idea how long Tim would have. Um, at one point, we did change the publication date, and it turned out that was really the Lord's um, help with us because we changed it in the exact time period when he did eventually die um, to move it up, um, to get away from that, because it just felt like it was, it was important for people to know that Tim wanted people to know that simultaneously he was he was helping me with the project but that it was really my work he was reacting to things that i did and and ideas that i had and perspectives that i that i had developed and i think what makes that kind of the, the other thing that's interesting about the approach that we decided to take is that in the process of writing and i knew this was going to happen tim was not really available for the first year of work that i did on the book for interviews and I knew to expect that because he's so busy and he was especially busy during the last years of his life. But in the Lord's favor, he just really, we worked that to our advantage because it meant that I got to talk to everybody else about Tim first. Yes. And then have his reaction in some ways to what they had said. And so, for example, I think where people can see the, the, the contribution most clearly would be related to Tim's home growing up. And that might've been something that you learned about. I don't think Tim's ever really talked about that much. And, and sure enough, later on, I mean, he would, he would say things and we all deal with our past in a different way. And Tim was often, he wasn't really the one to get hung up on it. And so he kind of shrug his shoulders and say, yeah, you know, there were some things, which is why it was so helpful that I was able to talk to his sister about it. And so the other reason why we really wanted to to do this while Tim was living was because Tim and Kathy could graciously advocate for me with a lot of the different sources, because these are people who are very close to the Kellers to this day, of course, with Kathy, and they know a lot of things. And there was a comfort of, of them saying, 
okay, so I can talk to Colin about these things. I can tell, I can answer whatever he asks. And, and, um, and one thing that was interesting that happened is that after Tim and Kathy might read what I would say, they would go back to the, to the person I learned it from and, and actually kind of debate out what had really happened. <laughs> did you really say that? Yeah. Did you really say that? Did that really happen? That. Yeah. <laughs> and so th those are all the reasons that we, we did it the way that we did and I think the Lord was was very kind to allow that to come together that way. I suspect you're right. When did you first meet Tim and what was that like? Yeah, so I can't remember, Bob. Were you at the Gospel Coalition's first conference in 2007? I missed the first one. I was okay, at the you're at nine, okay, at, at Rosemont. Yeah. So so I was just wrapping up my, my tenure as the news editor at Christianity Today magazine in 2007. I was about to start as a Master of Divinity student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So I had all kinds of reasons to go to the first conference here, here. Um, and so I was there for Tim Keller's justly now famous message, gospel centered ministry, where he talks yeah. about Jesus is a true and better fulfillment of all of these uh, old Testament um, uh, figures. So um, that was, was really an amazing event. And I was in the process of writing my first book at the time, young restless reformed. And it just occurred to me at some point, I mean, it sounds crazy to say now, but it just occurred to me at some point, that maybe I should try to include Tim Keller in that. But as you know, he was not really the household name that he ended up as until at least 2008. Um, and that was the same year my book came out. So um, so clearly in the research process in 2007, it wasn't like I had to include Tim Keller. There wasn't anybody telling me, oh, how could you ever write a book on the growth of Reformed theology in the 21st century without and Tim not, Keller? Yeah. In retrospect, that's obvious, but yeah. that wasn't the case at the time. So I went up to him at that conference and I and I met him and I asked if I could be if I could interview him for the book. He said no. Um, then he kind of wrote me. He was like, "Bad, ah, but here's my email address. And I wrote him and and then he said, I still don't want to do it, but I'll do it. And I gave him about eight questions and he didn't help me at all in those questions. <laughs> and then about a year later, um, uh, I asked, actually, I don't know why I did this, but I went back to him and I said, hey, here's an idea that I have uh, with one of my colleagues about a new series of books on cultural engagement. Would you be interested uh, in helping me to co-edit? And he, and he said, absolutely, I would, um, which totally shocked me. But that started a uh, really that professional relationship that then picked up with the Gospel Coalition in 2010. Our first book was by um, uh, Mike Gerson and Pete Weiner on politics um, that we edited. And so that was where it started, 2007. It's great. It's great. So for those who haven't read the book or might not read it, I can't imagine who, if anybody <laughs> falls in that category, but in case, tell us a little bit about Tim's uh, upbringing and early spiritual development. Yeah. So uh, there are some things in the book that people probably will know if they just have read a lot of Tim's books or listened to a lot of his sermons. And there are probably some things in the book that people don't know at all unless they read the book. And I think a lot of the things in his household growing up would be um, would, would fall into that category. And in many ways, this is probably where Tim would have given his shrug. In many ways, he would probably describe his childhood as fairly typical um, in the sense that it was 1950s. He was born in 1950, 1950s, Eastern Pennsylvania. Um, his, his dad's his, his father's family, having gone all the way back to the American Revolution, uh, German family, German, German Lutheran family there, basically stayed in Eastern Pennsylvania there. You know, for all those generations up in, in up to Tim and his wife's family, Italian Catholic, um, very interesting mix that that merged as so many people did after World War II and amid yeah. World War II. Um, and then probably describing that that 50s 
you know, there are some things on TV, but they really had to make their own fun. He was in a gifted program, but a lot of the kids would try to bully him. Um, his father had his his father had been a, a conscientious objector in World War II, which is pretty rare. Um, and so his mother wouldn't allow them to fight with any of the boys in the neighborhood. But, but the basic spiritual formation there is that he was um, he was baptized Catholic, and then he was baptized Lutheran, <laughs> yep. and then of course he grew up to be a Presbyterian. And in the middle of there, there was his mother. I really embraced a sort of a, a, a Wesleyan holiness version of fundamentalism in Eastern Pennsylvania that left a major mark on the family, but it was one that Tim uh, pretty strongly rebelled against. And there were a lot of that teenage angst there in those years. I mean, imagine I, I did this, Bob, when I was when I was working on the book. I tried to put myself in the mind of what it was like to be a college student in 1968, and you could probably guess which was the number one song in America when Tim started in college, by the way, same year as Woodstock, of course, but um, it was Hey Jude by the Beatles. Uh, so pretty memorable there. Uh, but I wanted to put, kind of put myself in, in that place in that time yeah. and uh, very tumultuous. And so spiritually speaking, he was um, really adrift, um, a tendency to rebel. It was interesting when, when people talk to me about Tim's famous sermon on the two sons, is he the older son or is he the younger yeah, son? Yeah. The complicated life. The complicated answer to that question yeah. is that Tim was both. Yes. Um, yes. And so at one of the nicknames that Kathy and the boys had given him was Boy Scout because Tim would never even park in the wrong place because he was always so like do the right thing. He's the, old, he's the oldest of three. OK, so there's part of that in there. But at the same time, he was he was the rebel who who fought with his mom. Uh, quite a bit. His dad, his father was a, a very quiet, very quiet figure. Um, his mother was the dominant one in that, in that household. And so there was a lot of pushback to that. And then when he subsequently under part Kathy's influence ended up in reformed theology, that was pretty controversial as well. So now family ended up making some changes later on, but it was an environment that I would say helped to set the stage for why Tim would spend his entire life marveling at the grace of God. Um, because I don't think it's something that he commonly associated with the kind of religion uh, that he grew up with. So here, here. He, he experienced a lot. One of the things I underlined uh, referencing what you just said, you mentioned he was living a quote, double life end quote, and that he quote came to the end of himself. Yeah. Can you amplify on that at all? Yeah, so the double life there is is essentially what a lot of people would experience. It's what really what I'm talking about here, which is that um, on the one hand, he's the Boy Scout, he's the upstanding person, he's taking, he's excelling in a lot of ways in his classes, he's hanging around inner varsity Christian fellowship. Yeah, that was one of the one of the um, that was the major influence spiritually for him. So on one hand, he is. He's not in the group because they know that he's not a born-again Christian at the time. He knows that. They know that. But he's very interested in what they're doing, even to the point of going on retreats with them, uh, reading Mere Christianity at their recommendation by C.S. Lewis. So he's doing that. At the same time, though, he's wrestling saying, but what if I can't do what I want? Yes. What, what if religion ever tells me that? That what I what I want to do with my life, and specifically, he talks about, you know, what if the person I love is somebody that my religion tells me that I can't be with? Is that actually something that I that I want to submit to? So that's the double life. There is that he's 
and, and in fact, Bruce Henderson is one of his, was his best man at their wedding. And he's his best friend here at the time. Um, they're 1968 to 72 there with InterVarsity. And Bruce talked with me quite extensively about how almost um, violently angry Tim would get when debating about Christianity. In fact, what Bruce would say is that Tim with these you know, huge frame and long arms, Bruce thought for sure he was going to pound a hole in the wall. <laughs> and he was just so volatile in terms of that. So that's the double life is he really wants to be part of InterVarsity, but he doesn't want to submit himself to the Christian religion. And so he's trying to see, are there any alternatives to this that might allow me to live the way that I want, um, but still be kind of religious or curious or, or spiritual or something like that. But yeah, the coming to the end of himself was realizing like, well, maybe I can't trust my desires. Maybe my desires shouldn't be sovereign here. And that's where he ends up experiencing that grace and, and um, is, is overwhelmed um, with that joy. That uh, deep intellectual probing and prodding that stuck with him for his whole life. <laughs> I have sure. several people um, who knew him from the Bucknell days. And here's how one described my callers. How would you describe him? Brilliant, a bit nerdy, yeah. a bit awkward, but always enlightening to be around. Oh man, that's yeah? perfect. Does that make sense? That, that could not be more perfect. I mean, I think, I, I hope people see this very clearly in the book, and it's not just the Bucknell years, but that continues very vividly through the Gordon Conwell years. Um, and I don't want to jump too far ahead in the story there, but one of the things that people have remarked on so dramatically is how surprising they were that Tim and Kathy were not these hot ministry commodities that everybody was falling all over themselves uh, for to hire. Part of that's because the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, was brand new at the time. They were in the Northeast. There weren't many churches in the Northeast. But the best comment um, that I love to share comes from Bruce Henderson, again, best man at their wedding. And I told him about when they got a job offer to go down for three months, a three-month term down in Hopewell, Virginia. And, uh, and Bruce says, yeah, yeah, they must have been desperate. And I said, well, of course, Tim and Kathy were desperate. Um, they were, you know, they were going to be postal workers in Boston. They had taken the exam. They were preparing to do that because they couldn't get a job. And Bruce says, no, Colin, you don't understand. I mean, the church must have been <laughs> desperate because they would not <laughs> they would not have been impressive. And that's exactly, you know, so that's Tim would have been the relatively quiet. But if you talk to him, brilliant and very nerdy yeah. <laughs> a student and Tim would the way Kathy described them is she's the she's the frumpy newspaper editor. And Tim is the, you know, he's the drum major. He's yeah. a trumpet player. Yeah. He's the drum major um, who just loves to read. Um, yeah, that's what, and, and they were, and I, last point that I'll say on this is that one thing that stuck with Tim is that his professors, generally speaking, did not see a lot of promise in him as well because of that nerdiness. Yeah. He wasn't that jocular type of muscular male Christian leader, like say R.C. Sproul. Yeah, was yeah, in yeah. part tim was not interested in sports um just never was yeah uh yeah, so yeah. that was one thing of just people didn't, didn't really see that in them but i i love that quote uh, let me jump to hopewell virginia since you brought it up uh, i i knew we had a pastor down there what i didn't know until i read your book how formative that was yeah how to pastor how to yeah. preach how to teach how to spend your time 
so formative. Would you amplify a bit? Well, I think I think I probably get more comments on the Hopewell chapter than than any other. Yeah. And um, and I, <laughs> you know, as a writer, you're 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 looking for certain illustrations that will help things to land. And and when I was told by somebody that Hopewell, Virginia, had been the cap the chemical capital of the South. I thought, oh, that's too perfect uh, for Tim and Tim and Kathy, their first church, the chemical capital of the South. Then when I found out that there was a sign, I was like, that's got to go in the book. Um, and then and then and then and then I hear from one of their best friends that, you know, this scene where there's this there's this moment where there's a hill that you crest and you can see hope. Well, and, and in the 1970s, it's just belching all of this yellow and yep. purple smoke yep. and all this sort of stuff. And, and the woman in the car says to Kathy, ain't it just beautiful? Because she's thinking these these are jobs, you know, and Kathy's thinking, oh, man, we're all going to die. <laughs> like This is not good. I went into detail about the whole pollution scandal um, yes. at, at town yes. and, you know, at, at the river and everything that shut it shut it entirely down. Anyway, all to say, it's just not the place that you would ever associate it, knowing what we know now. Yes. But you know what, Bob? I, I just it, it just occurs to me that many people probably don't know this, but the greatest theological works of Jonathan Edwards' life were written after he got fired from his church in Northampton when he was at Stockbridge as a missionary to the Native Americans. Uh-huh. And at the time, he was really working to translate, literally, in some ways, but to translate these doctrines to, to people. These were not highly educated people, obviously. Um, you know, not not the Puritan stock here, and um, and yet that was the most fruitful time of his of his writing ministry, and um, and so in some ways for Tim, the most fruitful time in some ways of his pastoral ministry. Those early years. Now, of course, it just completely drained him. I mean, he was burned out. Um, so he, I mean, he did. He did it all. That's the simplest way to put it. At yep. the time, he did it all, and that, and it was the kind of thing that he could not have kept doing. <laughs> Thanks be to God that Westminster called him, but that it just never changed. It, it just, it just stuck with him forever. The, the thing that he said that had that always, always sticks with me is you have to understand sort of the currency of love you know in in the in the place where you are and and Bob you know you know what that is in Princeton of how people think and of course in New York it's Tim would always say people have to know they have to know what you know before they'll let you love them yes. unless you impress them first yes. they're not going to let you in in hope well it's the opposite um, at least that's how Tim described it they have to know that they that you love them before they'll ever listen to anything you say. And then there was a, an anniversary celebration decades later. Tim's in New York, Redeemer's Flourishing at this time. There was a reception back in Hopewell to celebrate the anniversary of his ordination. And what stood out to me, I think maybe it was Lori Howell, their friend who told me this. She organized it. She said there was not a single person who said anything about anything Tim said while he was the pastor there. Yeah. Doesn't mean they didn't learn. Right. But they always talked about what he did when he showed up as a pastor. And that's so interesting. And, of course, he couldn't do that in New York in the same yeah. way. So now you get a lot of people who remember what he said yes, <laughs> there, yes. there, the other way around. But it just helps you to know you got to know the currency of love where yeah. you're ministering. It's yeah. great. After I read that chapter, I, 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 what came to mind was Moses in the wilderness. It was this yeah. Tim's time to just learn, of course, 
no one knowing except the Lord what was going to follow. Just a great, great yeah. It had, it had. I mean, it wasn't a wilderness in the sense of a punishment, not at all. You know, but a wilderness in the sense of the making of him of course all three boys all three keller boys born there in hope well yeah. so it was really the the crucible for their family and really uh two of their closest friends um also can't you know met, met them in hope well as well so very formative years yeah you referenced a couple of times and i want to echo a voracious reader yeah uh, i remember being in his office once and we were talking and i saw a book on the bookshelf i don't even remember what book it was Colin. And I had just read that book and I referenced something about the book and Tim knew exactly what I was talking about. Then he mentioned something else in the book that I barely remembered and only to find out Tim had read this book like 20, 25 years ago, but he remembered. <laughs> Did he have a photographic memory? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of those sort of um, off the record things of like, if you have a photographic memory, you don't exactly go around telling people that you have a photographic memory. Um, but, and I, so I never talked with Tim about it. I did talk with some people close to him about it. Um, I, you know, I don't know the, the technical definition, but he could remember what he read and where he saw it. Yeah. And that was simply a gift of God. There's just no other way around that. That was a gift of God. Yep. Um, and we're all the beneficiaries of Amen. it. Amen. Yeah, what a gift to the church. So I made a list. I don't know if I get through this whole list. The, the point I want you to comment on is the number of major Christian figures yeah. that impacted oh. his life. And he knew yeah. most of them. Yeah, they were did. contemporaries anyway. Yeah. Here's the list. And I took this from the back of your book. Yeah, Jay yeah. Adams, um, Richard Baxter, James Montgomery Boyce, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Calvin, Don Carson, uh, Edmund Clowney, Chuck Colson, Mark Dever, Jonathan Edwards, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, Charles Finney, John Gerstner, Billy Graham, and Oscar. The list just goes uh, on. Yeah. And he knew many of these figures. If he didn't know them, he certainly read what they what they wrote. Um, maybe I ask it this way: What three to five figures do you think were most influential? on tim either from their uh from their personal interaction or from books i know it's a tough question but you might have some have given us some thought it is a good question i i think i can i think i can answer that I th in part because tim answered it yeah um and he answered it in reason in the reason for god his first uh first That's major right. book so yeah. he answers it there he says it's jonathan edwards yeah. c.s lewis yeah. those are kind of the major theological influences kathy keller yeah. because she introduced him to to both of those and then you throw in there his only ever personal mentor that's ed Clowney. yes yes, yes. i think that's pretty much your list yeah. right there <laughs> with him not a bad list <laughs> no it's, it's a good list um it's a very it's a very good list and so yeah it's very i mean it's a significant um significant group and in a lot of um and and, and fairly eclectic which is yeah, pretty that, typical i was gonna make tim. that point too it's very eclectic. back to how broadly tim read how broadly Tim understood and it enabled him oh. not to insist his way was right. Oh. He was never offensive in communication. Yeah. And when you, <laughs> you know, you, you know, when you say that, when you say nevers, you're kind of stopped and you're like, yeah, no, I mean, Bob, I think, I think you and I knew him well enough. I mean, I said to other people, I never heard him criticize other people. 
Exactly. Uh, exactly. Let me let me just give you an example. I was using this with somebody earlier today. Um, N.T. Wright and, and and Tim Keller, contemporaries, um, and you know both just titans of transatlantic evangelicalism in the 20th and 21st centuries, and um, but disagreed on a topic that is pretty much core to both of them: the nature of justification by faith alone in the Reformation. Okay, significant. But you wouldn't hear Tim ever really attack Tom directly, but he would say, commend Michael Horton's volumes on justification. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. You know, and, and then he would recommend Tom's books on the resurrection. So that's just the way Tim did it. It's not the way everybody has to do it, but what I appreciate is how Tim was a generous reader. He would learn from all kinds of different people that he disagreed with in fundamental ways and he was not a tribal thinker. There was not a sense of, oh, you can't be reading that person because she's not in our camp. You can't help that person. I mean, the conversations he had at the end of his life, especially with, with younger leaders, many of them were with people that really disagreed with him. Or they even might have been really angry with him about some stuff. And yet he found ways to try to encourage them try to argue against them in a number of ways in his own way. It's just amazing the number of people who walked away from him saying, I, I you know, some of them were like Molly Worthen. They would end up becoming Christians, yes. the professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. But many others they didn't necessarily ever convert, but they were still marked by how he treated them as human beings, not as tribal figures, people who could still contribute to the kingdom and that they could still have a relationship with, even if they disagreed in really important ways, even ways that Tim might have regarded to be dangerous um, there. So it's the way he not only treated his, his peers, it's how he treated readers from you know, books and writers from across time. It's also how he treated younger people um, you know, toward the end of his life. So it's a, it's a clear characteristic that you can trace uh, back through his life. So you've alluded to, and I want you to comment, <clears throat> I would argue most of the time, Tim was the smartest man in the room. Yeah. And yet at the same time, he had an unbelievable humility, not a false humility. It was genuine. Yeah. That's a rare combination. <laughs> you know, the, and, and Bob, you've been with him in as many or more of those, those rooms that I did. Most, most of mine were with other pastors. Um, and sure, you know, you with all sorts of people who've been successful in many different spheres of life. I think the best perspective on this on this has come uh, in, in eulogy since Tim's death from Russell Moore and yes. from David Brooks. Yes. And I love the way that they describe it of of everybody in there. No matter the age, like Tim is the elder statesman, like he's and everybody in there is wants his approval. <laughs> they, they want his approval and he won't speak everybody else is talking and then he finds a way in the end to just sort of kick back synthesize and summarize everybody's perspectives add his own unique touch to it leaving everybody saying oh wow why did the rest of us bother to talk in the yeah, first so place true. but i think it's important that you identify bob there that it's a genuine humility yes a genuine humility. it's not an it wasn't an affect with him and you say that he was most of the time the, the smartest guy in the room did i underestimate well i'm just saying i it, it would have been the rare occasion yeah that he wouldn't have been however i will say this i sure hope that he married kathy 
um, not just somebody who can keep pace with him intellectually, but also somebody who was more than willing to argue yes. with him, which is something that he needed as part of what made their, their ministry marriage just so absolutely Amazing. dynamic across, across the decades. We've alluded to Kathy. Let, let's, let's go right to Kathy. Um, um, maybe describe the relationship at the very beginning and her huge influence on Tim spiritually during the ministry years. And then if you care to comment in the uh, caretaker uh, years. Yeah. Oh boy. What a wonderful question. I, I love this. I love this story um, that during Gordon Conwell years, you mentioned Jay Adams cause he comes early on in the, in the index, but mentioned Jay Adams, one of the founders of biblical counseling, uh, Tim and Kathy as, un, as graduate students, they go down to Philadelphia to take a course through Westminster um, on biblical counseling. And they're just friends. They're just friends at the time. And when it came to relationships, I think it was fair to say that Tim was the clueless one. Yes. In that, in that, as, as usual. In that situation, exactly. That's <laughs> typical for us. Um, but, um, you know, so they, so they go. And here's the thing. They're staying, they're staying with a, a church woman. It's the two of them staying as friends in this house <laughs> during this course. And you're sitting there like, what in the world? <laughs> Kathy's comment at one point, and this is so true. This is the way Kathy would often talks about things. She said, look, Colin, if we even wanted to do anything, we wouldn't have known what to do. <laughs> you know? So like, that's the level of cluelessness that we're talking about here. But by the time they go back, that's when that's when the message comes of like, look, Tim, if you don't see what you have in me, then I'm gone. Yeah. You know, we know enough here. And Tim's response was pretty clear. He just said, yeah, but how do you date somebody who's already essentially your soulmate? Yeah. Yeah. You know, how do you how do you say, hey, let's go see a movie when you've already bared your entire soul <laughs> to someone? <laughs> and so they knew like the moment they would start dating, it was basically just marriage, yeah. you know, right yeah. after that. And so they get married before their last semester in 1975. Uh, they're at Gordon Conwell. And um, yeah, and it just it's it's a I mean, it was just a clear path. I mean, it's it's entirely accurate to describe Kathy as a co-founder. Of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, absolutely. Of course, she served on staff there for many years, um, and then um, you know it's interesting the caretaker dynamic, Bob, because you'll remember this. In the aftermath of September 11th, Tim had the thyroid cancer. Kathy had Crohn's. Kathy's situation was so dire that Tim thought he'd have to quit to be able to care for her. Yes, the church situation was really rough. His leadership had been called into question. The trauma of 9/11 was severe. Um, Kathy had you know had these you know, had this terrible disease. Um, and so there were, there were definitely the times where Tim under the, all these different pressures, well, before he's famous, world famous, of course, um, is, is he's caring for Kathy thinking I, I, I might have to leave everything. Um, but then one of the things that you, you see with Kathy and this becomes so important, especially in his last years where they really got to spend the most time together that they ever got to spend going back to seminary. Yes. It's really, really touching in that way. But one of the one of their friends told me that uh, that Tim would forget to drink water if Kathy didn't remind him or give it to him. And I said, "Well, that's an interesting metaphor." And they're like, "No, I'm. <laughs> it's like literal." And then I'm on a video call like this uh, with Tim, and I see this hand. With water, you know, come from come from behind. I was like, oh yeah, now I see what you're talking about there. And so, in many ways, they were 
such a beautiful illustration of the of the one flesh in marriage because you really just can't imagine the one without the other because there's just no way Tim could have functioned in what he did without Kathy's unique ability to support him and care for him. And of course, that that certainly includes the last years of his life. Yeah. Great perspective. Thank you for that. Um, we've alluded a couple of times to the fact that Tim really didn't become famous yeah. uh, and a titan uh, in the church world until a lot later in life than a lot of people who ended up being titans. And he didn't yeah. write his first book until I can't remember what age. Yeah. What, what was that? 58. What, what took so long? Maybe I'll put it that way. Well, you know, I, I've, I've talked about this in some other settings, like the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast at Christianity Today. Yes. Um, but um, one of the things, I, I don't I don't know how much of a strategy it was in the sense that uh, two, two things happened. One is that the Internet just wasn't around in the same way that we know it today for most of the first half of his ministry. So he was fairly famous within his circles through cassette tapes that were circulating especially through the PCA um, that's into the two thousands there. And then the CDs and, you know, stuff like that. So, so that, I mean, that's already happening at that level. So it's not like he was unknown, but the internet, you know, in ministries like the gospel coalition didn't exist yet. So he didn't quite have the conferences, not quite the internet um, publishing that you would see there. So that's one reason why the second is that, uh, really, in in God's in God's plan, there was a connection that Tim developed being in New York because of a member of his church with Penguin Penguin Random House, ultimately his ah. his imprint there with Viking, and ah. so they connected him, and that's so really just sort of those being in New York things, and so, I mean, he was a very busy person and a very busy person all the time. We're all talking a hundred oh. hour week work, you know, stuff yeah. like that. Just really, really busy. And, you know, just leading Redeemer and everything, teaching demon courses at Reformed Theological Seminary, all these things were taking up a huge amount of his time. But he was always writing in the background all these white papers. Mako Fujimura talks about that in my book. Just all these these private papers that he had there. So I don't remember if it was a deliberate strategy, but the opportunity came because of being approached by Penguin Random House and invited to contribute at that point. And so something clicks there and that's when he's able to start publishing so now what you do get and i you know maybe somebody out there will be you know correct me as i'm wrong here but if you think about it bob from 2008 to 2022 that's the time period of nearly tim keller's entire canon absolutely right right. i would love to know any other period of christian history I mean, yeah, if we want to throw in Augustine, Calvin, people like that, Luther, of course, maybe especially we look at that early period of, you know, of of, of 1517 to 20, you know, whatever, 2020, you know, 17, um, 25 or whatever in there that that's that's or 15, uh, 25. That's fine. that, That would probably be better. But there just have not been many other publishing runs Yes, like that of books that are not only current success, but then future success as well. Um, so what you get is is the pastor who has fully matured yes, well <laughs> by said. that time and already has written a lot. Well he just said. hasn't published it yet. Yeah, yeah. You uh, mentioned the Gospel Coalition. Let's go there for a minute. Um, his uh, friendship with Don Carson, the formation yeah. of TGC. 
tell us how that happened. Yeah, so it's actually they they meet they meet at the Evangelical Ministers Assembly in the UK, and they think, huh, this is great. People, both of them, deep connections in England. Uh, Keller was an, a lifelong, well, adult Anglophile, as is Kathy. Of course, there's the Tolkien Lewis connections yes. there. And Don studied at Cambridge, did his PhD. His wife Joy is from is from England. Um, and so they've got that connection. I don't think they'd met, though. They don't run in the same circles. Not, you know, Tim was in the Presbyterian circles. Don's a Baptist and teaching in the Free Church Seminary. So they don't necessarily interact, but they meet at the Evangelical Ministry Assembly. And the conclusion is, um, wait a minute, we don't have anything like this to gather pastors from around the country in the United States. We should do that. And they come together also around a recognition that you've, you've got to always be maintaining the confessional theological core of evangelicalism. It's focused on the gospel. We're always prone to straying into different directions. And so they really, you know, press in on that to say, Hey, let's call together a group. Um, this, the first meeting happens in 2000, um, 2005. Here's what I want to point out about that meeting. Um, uh, Bob is that, two things are true. One, that Don Carson sees everything that's coming with homosexuality, division in churches. He sees it in 2005. We're talking about the early Bush, second Bush administration here, which is just fascinating. And then Tim Keller identifies something absolutely crucial. He says, here's the problem in evangelicalism. It's fragmented in three directions. Cultural apologetics has gone over here. Confessional orthodoxy has gone over here. And experiential revivalism has gone off over here but the best of evangelicalism when it's all together. Yes. And that's what he embodied. Yeah. And that's what he intended for the gospel coalition to embody as well and to model for evangelicals. So that became that mission. And now as we're looking at 20 years later, that Lord willing, and, and as he continues to, to protect us and keep us, that's our mission still today. And how many, uh, Hundreds do you expect will be at the conference in late September? I'm, I'm guessing somewhere around, you know, 5,500 paid yeah. registrants there, you know, some good, some 6,000 plus people in attendance there. And it's just a, just a, I mean, yeah. And, and, and we'll have it, we'll have an opportunity. I'll be talking about Tim Keller at that conference. We'll have an opportunity to look forward to the 20th years. We'll have an opportunity just to, just to remember Tim yeah. as well. Um, and what he meant to us. And it, it's um, it's hard. We didn't have him at the 2021 conference either, which was right after the pandemic. So we have done it without him before. But it's, um, man, we'll miss him. Yeah. There's yep, no yep. doubt about it. We'll miss him. Yep. No question. I'm watching the clock. I just have a couple more subjects I for sure want to touch on. Can't talk about Tim Keller without talking about his care for, his love for the city. Yeah. Yes, New York City, but way past New York City. Yeah. Where did that hunger uh, to build uh, the gospel in cities come from? Yeah, what's so fascinating, Bob, is that you see none of it for the first half of his life. Correct. And he didn't um, want to take the Redeemer job, remember? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the most fascinating stories to tell in there. So first half of his life, you just don't see any of that interest um, there in the city. It just, it's not there. But um it's especially it was it was a lot of what he picked up in Philadelphia. Kathy had some experience. I cannot tell you how many people I ran into in this book who read David Wilkerson's Cross and the Switchblade. And that was really something that put urban ministry on people's minds. Yes. But it was different. Tim was never talking about urban ministry per se, as evangelicals had often thought about it, kind of scary and dark. He was sitting thinking about city center ministry, as, including at a time when city centers were losing a lot of population. Uh, and so really the, the key influence there is is certainly Harvey Kahn, 
uh, one of his colleagues and teachers in his demon program at Westminster Theological Seminary, a, a former um, a missionary to South Korea and a, and a keen missiologist in his generation. So a lot of that biblical, so you kind of combine the Ed Clowney, Westminster, Gerhardus Voss orientation toward biblical theology, Genesis to Revelation, tells you a lot there about the city and the progress of civilization, kind of overlay that then with um, you know, Harvey Kahn's missiology, and that's where you get Tim Keller's love for the city. That's great. Personal question. How did knowing Tim writing this book impact you uh, mm. spiritually and intellectually? You know, I thought I knew a lot about Tim. Um, turned out I didn't <laughs> uh, compared to what I thought. And just studying Tim is an entryway into amazing worlds, yes. worlds of understanding, worlds of insight. Not you know, Tim is in so many ways. He's not the, he's not the destination. He's the doorway. Um, and so you, you enter into these rooms through his invitation to marvel at the, the glories of Christ as, as you see them unfold from Ed Clowney's lectures in, in 1973 at Gordon-Conwell. Um, th th those lectures, just listening to them, thinking nobody's heard these since Tim and Kathy were brand new seminary students in 1973. And just thinking, I mean, that was amazing to be able to do. So um, that's how it affected me, both intellectually and spiritually. I think... I think um, I would share a common view with Tim there that usually our intellectual interests, our spiritual interests and vice versa. There is a yes. dynamic interplay yes. of just learning as we learn about just the glories of Christ as revealed in his word and in his world. Um, it's just amazing. So that's that's how it affected me. And it's really changed. It's changed my life. Um, I the last thing just to, to say here is that I, I looked up to Tim in so many different ways um, before writing this book. And it was great to be able to be confirmed on some of his weaknesses that I already knew. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But at the same time, it was amazing to me how I came through with so much more respect for him. And that's probably not the case for, for all of us when you're like, yeah, good, we'll really look into my life and you're become more, you know, develop more respect. Right. And that doesn't happen as we know sometimes in some high profile examples, but it was certainly the case with Tim. Yeah. He, uh, he understood his weaknesses yeah. he didn't, and he didn't hide them. That's right. And you also alluded to, we could spend 10, 15 minutes on this. He finished well. He did. That's just Praise a, such God. an example for us. Praise God. Before I thank you, Colin, I just want to point out to anybody who's, who's listening. We've talked about Tim Keller. You might say they're idolizing Tim Keller. <laughs> no, that's not our purpose. That's not our goal. Tim was an amazing man and it would be easy to idolize Tim Keller. But what a gift Tim was, is to the church. Uh, but he always pointed, including every one of his sermons, he always pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that, that he would be honored and glorified. Amen. So, Colin, I thank you again for writing the book, for your perspective, for your knowledge. I look forward to seeing you at the memorial service next yes, week. Yes, absolutely. And at the Gospel Coalition uh, a month from now. God bless you. Thanks, Bob.